Today, I'm honored to bring you Paul Anthony Wallace. Paul is the author of the international best-selling book, Escaping from Eden, and he co-hosts The Fifth Kind TV, a channel in partnership with Gaia TV. He has served as an archdeacon in the Anglican Church, and his work probes the world's mythology and ancestral narratives for insights into human origins, human potential, and our place in the cosmos. Paul, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate your time and welcome. G'day, Jeff. It's great to be with you today. All right. So how did an archdeacon from the Anglican Church get involved in writing about aliens? Well, the short story version is that the Bible is a very interesting book. And if you're in ministry, you're going to be in contact with it. And for much of my ministry, 33 years in congregational ministry, I was involved in training pastors in how to interpret ancient texts, the, the science of hermeneutics, it's called, how to interpret ancient texts, the Bible in particular. And so just like most preachers, I was having to engage with that text. And often I would come away with questions about anomalous moments that didn't seem to fit with any of the familiar stories we tell from the Bible. And each time I spotted one of these anomalies that would make me go, what? What's happened? That doesn't quite make sense. What's, what's really happening there? I would always promise myself I will get back to that at some point and drill down into that, work out what's going on. But almost like every person on the planet, I'm kept too busy just uh, working, making enough to survive that I never had that time to go back and address those questions until, uh, as I talk about in Escaping from Eden, I suffered an ultimate Frisbee injury, which gave me some convalescing time. And that's when I sat down and did some translation work, because my first love is languages and linguistics. And when I finally sat down with those anomalies, I realized these are translation issues. And when I started doing the translation work, I realized there's a whole other to me, completely unfamiliar story hiding in plain sight. And it goes back to our most ancient memories of our origins as a species. All right. In your best-selling book, Escaping from Eden, you claim that ET contact is actually hidden in plain sight. Can you give us some examples of that? Sure. Well, when I sat down to do that research, I had the notion there might be an alien or two lurking somewhere in the text. And the reason that was even a question in my mind is that back in 2009, the Roman Catholic Church um, under Pope Benedict XVI had convened the Pontifical Academy of Sciences. Now, it was Pope Benedict's instruction. They should convene it, hold a symposium, which they called a colloquium, a gathering of top scholars and top theologians, to discuss the theological implications of contact with other civilizations. And they made a big noise about this. I was blown away by this because it was only 400 years ago, same institution was burning people alive for merely suggesting there might be intelligent life on other planets. And now all of a sudden, they were coming out with these statements saying, uh, before and after the colloquium, they were going to the press and making these kinds of statements saying that we shouldn't be surprised to encounter 
aliens. We should regard them as brothers and sisters, creatures of the same creator. There's no theological issue. It just means God has made more than we thought. And then the senior astronomer for the Vatican Observatory, I think, went the furthest when he said, we shouldn't be surprised to meet them. So they're not, not just talking about ideas, shouldn't be surprised to meet them because they're in the Bible, he said, they're in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so this was the curia, the Pope and his senior representatives throwing down the gauntlet to people to say, go back and look again. You're going to find some other kinds of entity in those ancient texts. You're going to find aliens there. And when I heard that, I thought, really? Could I have missed something as glaring as aliens in the Bible? I've been teaching pastors how to interpret the Bible. Wouldn't I have noticed? So it was a real challenge. And I responded to that. And to answer your question, found that there are some really key words whose translation needs a careful look at. And the most fundamental word is the word Elohim. It's, to put it simply, the original word in the Bible that gets translated as God. And yet you look at the etymology of it, the word means the powerful ones. It's a plural form word. It takes plural verb forms, exhibits plural behaviors, you know, let us make, let us make the humans to look like one of us. The powerful ones conflict with one another over agendas for humanity. The conflict gets so violent that humans get genocided in the crossfire of that conflict. And so as I began looking at it that way, I asked myself, what would happen to the whole of the biblical story if every time we find the word Elohim, we translate it in its root meaning? Instead of what the translators do at the moment, where in one text it's God, in the next it's the devil, in one it's demons, in one it's false gods, in one it's landlord, chieftain, chieftains, or even angel, angels. What if we take a step back from these arbitrary choices, because they are arbitrary, it's just according to what's happening in the action that determines which of those words gets picked. And I thought that's not really an acceptable way of going about translation. What if we just use the root meaning every time? Tell these are stories of the powerful ones. How do the stories change? And so escaping from Eden takes the reader through the experience of rereading these old familiar stories, but with Elohim translated as the powerful ones. Well, the moment you do that, the stories change, obviously, but they don't change in a random way. The way they change is they flip in such a way they line up in parallel with the ancient Sumerian, Babylonian, Arcadian, and Assyrian stories and with ancestral narratives from cultures all around the world. Suddenly it becomes obvious that the biblical stories of the powerful ones are a retelling of the Sumerian stories of the sky people or the Mayan stories of those who engineer. And those root stories, the Sumerian stories in particular, they're not stories about God. God really doesn't get a mention in those stories. Those stories are the memory of that ancient culture of contact between our ancestors and extraterrestrial visitors who came from another planet, colonized planet Earth, and genetically modified our ancestors to be, in effect, 
a working class for them. That's the story that's hidden in plain sight in the Bible. You do that one translation change and the story is staring you in the face. And that was the red pill moment I had in my shipping crate cabin as I sat doing my research. And it's what led to escaping from Eden. That statement you made is amazing. Do you quote that in your book about the senior guy from the Vatican saying that aliens are in the Bible? Because I'd love to see that. Oh, absolutely. I talk about this in Escaping from Eden and in The Scars of Eden. And it wasn't just one bloke. We had um, Father Jose Gabriel Funes, who's the director of the Vatican Observatory in Arizona. He was the first one who started going to the press saying, we should not be surprised to be encountering aliens and we should be ready to embrace them as brothers and sisters. That's what he said. And then we had very significant Monsignor Corrado Balducci, who is the Roman Catholic Church's senior advisor in the paranormal. Now, what paranormal ministry usually means is entity removal, exorcism, deliverance, that kind of thing. And he has to be an expert in that but also an expert in psychology, as there's such an overlap and potential confusion of those topics. So he's a highly educated person speaking into this field. And he came out and said, when people report abduction experiences, we should not be listening as if they are reporting a psychological, psychiatric episode And we shouldn't respond as if they're describing something demonic. They are reporting encounters with a totally different kind of entity, he said, one that merits serious study. Now, when somebody of that seniority in the Roman Catholic Church says that, um, it's actually a very authoritative statement saying there are other kinds of entity and we need to listen to abduction stories with greater respect expecting that what we are being told represents very closely what has happened. So that was an amazing statement. And then finally, the guy I mentioned before was the Reverend Dr. Guy Consolmagno, the one who said they're in the Bible. Mm, That's amazing. You mentioned that there are anomalies in the Bible. Can you give me some examples of those? Well, if you sit down with a child and a children's Bible, the child will point the anomalies out from the get-go. So as soon as God says, let us make, your kid is going to say, who's the us? Who's he talking to? And you have to explain why there's this plural going on in the text, and that's where Escaping from Eden begins. Or you might notice, if you read very closely, that before the first word of creation is spoken, everyone's familiar with the let there be light And then everything else follows on from that. And it's a wonderful sequence. And, uh, you know, post-Einstein, people got very excited and said, oh, look, that's amazing because light, the properties of light, really is foundational to the universe. Of course, God would start with light, except that before light is created, or the sun or the moon or the stars, in the text, planet Earth already exists. It already exists flooded and shrouded in darkness. Now, a child might point that out. How does planet Earth exist before any of the work of creation? You get a little further in, let us make humans to look like one of us. 
one of who and how can we look like the source of the universe? What on earth does that mean? Then you get into Genesis. Um, oh, then you've got the creation of human beings where the creation of the female of the species is an afterthought, only after a line of pets has uh, failed to supply Adam's need. Well, wouldn't an almighty God have worked out? You would need a male and a female. Isn't that a little odd? Or you get into Genesis 3. The way it's translated at the moment, you've got two entities arguing over how intelligent human beings should be. And the entity that's translated as God wants human beings so unintelligent they don't even know they're naked. So that's how interested in human progress the God character is. Well, that raises a question mark. And then the child will ask, who's the snake? Where's the snake come from? How come he can talk? And couldn't they anticipate this was going to happen? They were going to eat that fruit. Why would God punish them when he hadn't given them the moral capacity to make moral decisions and they want to know good from bad. How is that? It's all incoherent with uh, all due respect. Every preacher knows this because the preacher has to try and make coherent sense of that story of a God who wants human beings that unintelligent. The moment you do the translation work, you realize mm, this isn't a story of God and the devil going at each other. It's the story of the powerful ones conflicting among themselves over how intelligent they want the human beings to be. And there is uh, a person, a faction that breaks ranks and says, we're going to do an upgrade. We're going to take them from being only males to being male and female. We're going to take them from being sterile to being fertile. We're going to take them from being unintelligent to being intelligent. And after the upgrade is affected, well, then there's a huge stink and a conflict over it. Now, you translate it that way, and it's exactly the same story you can read in the Sumerian texts or in the Greek or in the Nordic or in the Mesoamerican. These parallel stories are told all around the world. And it was those correlations that really got my attention. A, a story that says we were engineered from a primate that was already here. We were adapted for greater intelligence, upgraded, 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 and then downgraded to a point where we could be managed. And it was that pattern and all the details of it that made me think, this is a memory of something real. The language clues are there to tell you it's not a text that's traveled around the world and being translated and retranslated. The images are different. The telling is different. But the essential memory is the same. And it's a story that Plato taught two and a half thousand years ago, one of the greatest minds of all time, who had gathered stories from all around the world, who had this amazing, I would say, scientific method in progressing his thought. And he said, he believed we had been evolving naturally on this planet until we were visited by another species who adapted our ancestors to be cleverer, smarter, and have better technology. And that is his explanation as to why we are the alpha species on the planet. And that caught my attention in Plato, in world narratives, and all the way back when I was 11 years old, when Eric von Daniken mentioned it in his book, Chariots of the Gods. Now, you mentioned that they wanted us to be manageable. 
do you think that they hardwired into us the desire or not even desire, but we just have this natural ability or natural way about us that we like to worship. And I mean worship like we either worship a religious leader, we worship a movie star, we worship a singer. We love to idolize. You think that's also been hardwired into us? Well, yes, I think there are probably three layers that have resulted in our being like that. I'll see if I can uh, remember my thread as I go through this. But if you could imagine, most of the so-called creation stories curated by cultures around the world, funnily enough, begin with a flooded planet. And then entities turn up that begin terraforming the planet. They all have different language for it, but essentially, if you go to ancient Sumeria, to the Bible, to Nigeria, to the Philippines, they all tell the story of vortices of winds clearing water from the high ground in order to begin rehabilitating a devastated planet, re-terraforming it, and nurturing life on Earth. The way it's told suggests to me that the survivors of whatever had flooded the planet saw this happening, that this is eyewitness testimony. And if you are some poor primate watching the species turn up with technology that can do that to your planet, well, of course you're going to think these are our superiors, these are our gods, And so from the get-go, there's going to be this deference. There would be a huge power imbalance between the arrivals and the residents. So there's that deference from the get-go. The Sumerian stories tell us that those who arrive were rather cynical about this and said it'll be easier to get the humans serving us if we can frame this in religious terms. If they believe we are their gods they will count it as a virtue to serve us. So, yes, I think they did want to engineer a species that would be compliant, that would regard them as superiors, and they told stories to try and reinforce that. Well, another aspect of the story is told by the Mayans in their version of the stories of beginnings recorded in the Popol Vuh. Now, this is a a narrative from Guatemala, although it's retold in other parts of Central and South America. And what the Mayans said is that those who engineer turn up to a flooded planet, they terraform it, and then they start a long sequence of experiments to try and engineer a working-class species, There's some kind of a primate they're working with. Initially, they produce something that is not intelligent enough to serve them, then something that just has no interest in worshipping superiors. I mean, if you can imagine engineering something like a gorilla and then finding out it has no interest in working for you, well, that's kind of the situation they had. They said to one another, according to the Popol Vuh, let us make avatars for ourselves to work for us and bring us our food. That's their goal. So they kept on at it, and then they produced Homo sapiens plus. That's us plus a bit of remote viewing, us plus a bit of precognition, us plus a really good telepathic connection. And they found it was very difficult to control and manage that species. They had overshot the mark. And so they send their chief genetic engineer 
Quetzalcoatl, a.k.a. Kukumats, a.k.a. Kukulkan, back into the lab to work out how to downgrade us to a point where we're just bright enough to do the work. And the solution, so says the Pope Orvu, is he came up with a vapor, which when sprayed over human populations, damages our neurological connections, our neural connections, to the point where we lose those higher cognitive powers, where we're limited to our five physical senses and to what we're told by an authority. And they found that useful. And so that's kind of interesting and kind of encouraging in a way because it says our actual natural wiring is to be brighter, smarter, cleverer than this. They had to come up with something external to damage us and dumb us down. And there is a really interesting field of study that I think you, Jeff, probably know about called acquired savant syndrome. It's something that, uh, um, what are they called? People who study the the brain neurologists around the world study. It's a genuine peer-to-peer reviewed scientific discipline. And it's the study of people who have accidents where there's an injury to the brain or a central nervous system event, and the result of their injury is they're suddenly cleverer. They can suddenly speak a language they couldn't speak before, or they're brilliant at maths, or they can play an instrument, do art. They suddenly have this ability that they didn't have before. Now, this would seem really odd. An injury shouldn't extend your abilities. But what neuroscientists are saying is that we have higher cognitive abilities in our brains that are currently in the off position. Now, that's pretty hard to explain from a naturalistic evolutionary framework, but our ancestors say, yes, that's right. We used to be cleverer, and we've been dumbed down to this. And what I find intriguing is that the cultures who curated that story of upgrade, upgrade, downgrade have generally curated mystical and shamanic practices aimed at switching our brains back on, aimed at getting our remote viewing going again a better telepathic connection going again, more precognition happening for us. And probably everyone listening to us talk today, Jeff, has had glimpses of those things. They've had a glimpse of precognition. They know who's going to ring them in two seconds' time. They know something's just happened with their son. They've got that connection. Um, They've had a glimpse of remote viewing, a glimpse of telepathy, enough to ask, wow, how did I just do that and could I develop it? And our ancestors said, we all have that ability. We can all nurture it. Um, That's where their mysticism and shamanism comes in. I love how you laid that out because the majority of the content on my channel is near-death experiences. And it's quite often that after a near-death experience, someone has an increased ability, like you're mentioning, whether it's precognition or some kind of psychic ability Most of the time, they're not brain injuries, though, but I'm wondering if somehow a near-death experience resets your brain somehow or these abilities, as you spoke of, turn back on. Well, the uh, neuroscientists refer to the things that trigger acquired savant syndrome as central nervous system events. I would suggest that a near-death experience 
is a central nervous system event, (laughs) I reckon. I think there would be an impact at that level. And I find it so intriguing. I love listening to the interviews you're doing, Jeff, right now, because it absolutely fits with what our ancestors believed about who we really are. And Plato writes about this as well, that we are conscious beings first. Then we have this material life, and then our consciousness survives that. And I think we wake up to that either through having a near-death experience ourselves or even just listening to other people's and realizing I have experiences that absolutely correlate with that. What I love also about what you're saying is most people put these extra abilities as just woo-woo stuff. Oh, woo-woo, you're seeing the future, you know, you're having this cognition, but you're actually giving a credible reason why it could be happening. Well, our ancestors has had an explanation as to how these things could happen, where these higher cognitive abilities came from, why for most of us, for the most part, they're switched off. They had an, It's still mind-boggling, but they had an explanation. And today our scientists are absolutely baffled by it, and they don't have an explanation for it, but they are noting the phenomenon. Hmm. I noticed on your YouTube channel that you had a video about meditation or something. Have you explored this subject yourself, like trying any certain types of meditations or shamanic experiences to, you know, improve your own abilities? Yes. Um, I noticed as I was doing my research for Escaping from Eden and the Scars of Eden that there are shamanic traditions around the world that believe that an altered state of consciousness can sometimes allow us to perceive other dimensional entities. So in our ancestors' stories, we've got stories of, we might call them aliens or extraterrestrials, essentially people somewhat like us, but from another planet. But they also tell stories about other kinds of entities, energy-based beings, beings that exist in another dimension but that impact this dimension. And so if you go to uh, Central and South America, you'll find tea ceremonies there designed to alter the state of consciousness so that you can begin interacting with this other dimension. The experiences that people report correlate in such amazing detail that it suggests something very real is being encountered. The ancient Celts uh, of um, Northern Europe had their own method to perceive this other dimension, which they called the Caesar. And the Caesar is this dimension that's occupying the same space as this one, but kind of out of phase with us, if you see what I mean, so that we don't perceive it, yet it's still influencing us. And their methods had to do with, we would call them mindfulness exercises, often just tuning into our physical senses in such a deliberate way that you shift your brain waves to a point where you start seeing and hearing things that you didn't see and hear before. I've long been an admirer of the Eastern Orthodox Church's tradition of hesychasm, which is controlled conscious breathing. You can find it in Buddhism and other traditions as well, where through controlled conscious breathing, you shift your state of consciousness, you alter your brain waves, and then 
you begin perceiving other things. And my favorite saint, Saint Seraphim of Saroff, was an expert at this. He lived from 1759 to 1833. And through his exercise of controlled conscious breathing, he had a phenomenal ability in precognition, telepathy, remote viewing, and healing, real documented healings that went on for a period of 15 years. And he caught my attention years and years ago. And I began thinking, how's he doing that? And how did he learn how to do that? I'm in Australia. If you sit down with um, Aboriginal Australian elders, they have their ceremonies that are due with smoke and smoking, similar to those of the Native Americans. And all these are to do with altering our state of consciousness to the point where we can download information from other dimensions, perceive entities that we wouldn't usually perceive that are quite real, that impact this life. And these are traditions that go back thousands of years and exist all around the world. For me personally, it's the controlled conscious breathing that I've, I've done the most of and had glimpses of the kind of results that our ancestors have known. All right. You mentioned how intelligent or very clever Plato was. And one time I went to the opera and I saw Figaro, and I think that opera's two or three hundred years old. And when I left that opera, I had the feeling that people have not changed at all in the last three hundred years. You know, and I don't think humans' intelligence has changed that much. Maybe even since Plato. Do you think that they're that they're holding us at this level, or do you think they've dumbed us down even since Plato, or do you think they're going to upgrade us? Well, I think, yes, I don't think we've evolved as a species in terms of our intelligence since the time of Plato. And it's very interesting when you look at the questions and conflicts and battles being fought at that time, they're not very different to the ones of today. Um, And I think the fact that there are always attempts to dumb us down, to use that phrase, to manage the intelligence of the human race, ought to encourage us, ought to confirm that we're actually, naturally, a very intelligent species. If the ancient Roman emperors had to come up with ways of distracting the population, entertaining them to the extent they wouldn't notice what their leaders were up to, that's a testament to the intelligence of the general public. And I think there's always an equivalent of that. Uh, I don't want to sound too cynical, but governments want to be able to govern their populations. And so managing the news, managing information, managing education, managing public intelligence in that way is always an agenda. Just last year, there was a big deal issue here in Australia where some legislative changes were made to try and shift our university sector further away from an education mindset to a training mindset. The government wants human beings who are industry ready. They don't want universities educating us beyond that. Well, that has amazing echoes of that story of the Mayans Mm -hmm. saying that those who engineers said, can we just get them to the point where they're bright enough to work for us and bring us our food? and then had to dumb us down with the spray because we were too clever. We're having the same issues and questions and debates right now. And in fact, in the Scars of Eden, I suggest that all the conflicts uh, 
that the powerful ones had, that the sky people conflicted over, that the those who engineered arguments about those alive issues all through human history to do with managing the human population, it's at one level a potentially rather depressing story, but the flip side of it is we are a naturally bright, intelligent, resilient species, and that's why these debates are perpetual ones. Do you think they're still here managing us? And if so, what for? What do they even need us for anymore? Or are they just curious about us and using us as an experiment? Well, that's a really good question. When you read the Sumerian stories and when you read the biblical stories the way I think they should be translated, uh, as I set out in Escaping from Eden and the Scars of Eden, you could form the view that we were colonized in the ancient past and then once, I mean, it's very similar to what we do when we invade each other's countries. We go in, we overpower the country with our military We are the police, we are the educators, we're the news agency, we are the courts. And then after we've been there a while, once we've set the commodity prices and the exchange rates, set up the banking systems, evaluated their money system, logged it into ours, then we can take a step back. We no longer need to be the police and the teachers. They can appoint their own. We no longer need to be on the soil. We can go home and continue to enjoy being at the top of the economic tree through all these mechanisms we set up. Well, it's very possible the same was done to us as a planet, and it certainly comes across that way when you read the biblical Sumerian stories. Also, go to Nigeria, and the pattern is there that we begin with the um, Ojisu, the rulers from the heavens, and then there's a handover to the Oba, the rulers from earth. Same in the Bible, you start with being ruled by the powerful ones, then there's a crossover king, King Saul, and then it's human governors. Same with the sky people in Sumeria. And from that storyline, you could get the impression that gone were being managed from afar. But then just before Christmas, Haim Ashed, the former chief of space security of Israel, held that position for 27 years, came out and publicly said on the basis of his work, his understanding, remember how senior a figure this is, his understanding is that there is an intergalactic federation that has a stakeholding in Project Earth, but has chosen not to self-disclose. Now, when he said that, that would have been mind-blowing to many people, but he's actually only repeating what our ancestors told us thousands of years ago, namely that there is a sky council. It's talked about in the Bible by the Sumerians, Greeks, Nordics, Indians, go everywhere it's there. The sky council is a body of various ET demographics who are in some kind of an arrangement together with regard to managing Project Earth. They're not all here for the same thing. They don't all want the same thing, which is why they conflict with one another over human progress, for instance. Some, it would appear, are here for what the planet has to offer. The Sumerian stories and the biblical hint at mineral interests in planet Earth. Others are here for other properties to do with the planet. The abduction stories that are told by cultures around the world suggest they're here because of us, that they are using us to enhance their own gene pool. And that in turn, could be for various reasons. 
Our ancestors talk about some visitors who are here to help and some who are here to harm. Many of the ancestral narratives name people from the Pleiades and from the Sirius star system as having a nurturing relationship with humanity. Others talk about people from Orion with more of a mixed agenda. And some speak of entities who came really to savage and harm and steal from our planet. I think all those agendas our ancestors talked about are still current. There's some kind of an arrangement among our current visitors. And I think when we get a spat of disclosure or a spat of sightings, UFO encounters, it may be because that policy of non-disclosure is a little bit more fragile than it's been in the past. And I sense from what's happening at the moment with official disclosures that that might be the picture right now. There's a little bit more going on and a little bit more unpredictability. And I think some of the official announcements from the Pentagon are almost like an insurance policy in case suddenly it becomes too obvious that we've got company. So they can say, well, we ha- we did tell you, if you remember. Remember mm-hmm. the Senate briefings, which are coming later in the year, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. But really, it's nothing new. When Haim Ashed says Intergalactic Federation, our ancestors said it thousands of years ago. When Ed Mitchell, the late Ed Mitchell, talked about a federation of spacefaring civilizations and wanting us to take our place in it, He's saying what our ancestors said thousands of years ago, and that's the territory I explore in The Scars of Eden. Mm. One of the most fascinating things Ham, I'm not sure how I pronounce his name, Ham Ashed said when he made that statement for me was that space is not what you think it is. What do you think about that? Yes, that's right. And he said they wouldn't disclose until our understanding of the fabric of space had progressed a little bit. Well, I, I find it really intriguing. I, I love to keep an eye on what quantum research is telling us, because what quantum research is pointing to is nothing is as we thought it was. Uh, the idea that consciousness might actually shape material reality not news to Plato, because he talked about that, but news to most of us, and it totally upends most of what we think we know about reality. We're looking into the question, what is the fabric of space? How does space have mass, and what is it a mass of? And, Jeff, I love listening to you interviewing those who have near-death experiences because so many of them say that when we're out of our bodies, when we go back into pure consciousness, Time doesn't exist. And that's what our ancestors said as well. So if time doesn't exist, then we really have a mind-boggling exercise to work out what everything else means. If E equals MC squared is correct, and you've got time built into that that equation, if time doesn't exist, what does E equals MC squared even mean? So I think that's one aspect of it. I think when shamanic practitioners or people who've had NDEs talk about their experiences, you realize that space can't be what we think it is because we can get through it like that. And those who study UFO phenomena are beginning to understand that our visitors aren't traveling here using Newtonian physics because, as any physicist would point out, it's 
this is just not going to work. The distances are too vast. That actually UFOs turn up here the way they do in Star Wars or Star Trek, where they just pop into our space from somewhere else. And so that tells us, put it all together, three things. Consciousness is not what we think it is. Time is not what we think it is. Space is not what we think it is. And as we begin to get our heads around the idea of zero point, zero point creation, zero point energy, well, we have to start from scratch with everything we thought we knew. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because some of the near-death experiencers have commented that besides seeing angels or God or Jesus, some of them have actually seen ETs or non-human entities. And I think the ET or, the as you mentioned, the UFO community is now also saying that ships are traveling here interdimensionally. Maybe that yes. maybe in a near-death experience, once you're out of your body, you're into the Galactic Federation. Indeed. And some of our ancestors, when they talk about traveling through the cosmos, it's not clear whether they're talking about traveling through the cosmos or what we might call astral travel, whether it's their consciousness that was taken. But the moment you start looking into the abduction phenomena, you realize there's a great spectrum of those that that, uh, very possibly we're listening to some stories where consciousness has been manipulated or taken somewhere and others where people have clearly been taken somewhere physically and there are the signs that uh, corroborate that. So I think all those things are going on and I find that absolutely mystifying and intriguing. And there are stories that have been told consistently from generation to generation all around the world. All right. In your new book, Scars of Eden, you share about your own experiences. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, yes. The reason I share my own experiences is because they are totally undramatic. Um, I don't have an experience like uh, a Travis Walton or a Whitley Strieber. But the reason I included it is that as soon as Escaping from Eden was published, people started contacting me every week and most weeks. It's every day. I hear from people who have had anomalous experiences that absolutely blow open their established worldview or their faith or their understanding of the world, and they're struggling to process it. Often I hear from people who will say things like, I had a close encounter when I was 15 years old and I've told my wife about it. I've spoken with the person I was with when it happened and I haven't told another living, breathing soul in the 50 years since. I'm very humbled when people tell me that. I also hear from veterans of war whose experiences in the theatre of war have clued them that something else is going on on this planet and that they've been involved in operations that have to do with ancient narratives to do with our origins as a species, and they therefore come and ask me about that. Now, these people don't share their stories lightly. They hold their stories very closely because of the huge ridicule factor that exists around the idea of ET contact. And so often I found especially in the beginning, they would test me with questions to see if I could be trusted with their stories. They didn't want to just pour this story into any ear. And so they would say, Paul, have you had a close encounter? 
And at the beginning, I'd say, oh, no, I haven't, but I know many people who have. But the more stories I listened to, the more I thought, wait a minute, hang on. And I started thinking about things that had happened to me years ago that I'd never understood or been able to get my head around that had always bothered me because I couldn't understand what it was. I began to realize my experiences fitted with a pattern. So I'll tell you one of them. When I was 20, I had five experiences when I was 20 that at the time, because I I was a very zealous young Christian at the time, everything had to fit into these neat theological boxes I had. Everything was either God, the devil, angels, demons, human, animal, vegetable, mineral. There were no other boxes. And I had these strange experiences that I couldn't process that I thought, well, that must be angelic, although it didn't quite seem to that must be demonic although that doesn't quite seem to now i look back and think no there's some other boxes paul you're experiencing something else and the first experience was i was alone in my apartment in bath and i became aware of five things in my room five entities standing in my room that i couldn't quite see they were about the size of a seven-year-old They were sort of grayish. I could almost see through them like they were semi-cloaked. I was absolutely terrified. I was sitting up in my bed at the time. I was absolutely terrified. I was shaking like a leaf. And I, like a toddler, just pulled the covers over me. And then I don't know what happened next. Hmm. And I didn't tell that story to many people because it just sounds ridiculous. And most people would say, oh, he had a bad dream. No, I was wide awake when it happened. My room was full of light when it happened. I don't know what it was. And I don't know what happened next. I assume I must have fallen asleep. But all these years later, I puzzled over it because when you're terrified, you don't just fall asleep. Something happened next. And I have no idea what it was. And as I began listening to other people's experiences, I realized other things happened that year that clued me to the fact I had lost some time that year. I have some missing time in the year when I was 20. And then there were other things that happened. And as I began joining the dots, a coherent picture emerged. Well, I told this story to Richard Dolan, who was a well-known ufologist, And I like Richard because he's very, very grounded. And his research tends to stay on the territory of documentary evidence of UFO encounters engaged with by U.S. defense. That's been his his big thing. Very grounded, very intelligent, very sensible. I mentioned this to him. And his next words were, Paul, I think the... ET human hybridization program is probably far more widespread than we've ever imagined and involves a lot of people. And my jaw dropped when he said that because I thought, what? You think my experience is part of that? That had never crossed my mind. And he suggested that I perceived these entities on that occasion because they weren't properly cloaked. It was possible. I'd been visited on a number of times and not known about it. I shared the story with Barbara Lamb, who is a renowned psychotherapist, who has continued with the methods developed by John Mack, the uh, former head head of clinical psychology for Harvard, who U.S. defense tasked to investigate abduction phenomena by U.S. defense personnel. They wanted to know if 
these people were saying, if they'd encountered something real, and he concluded, yes, they'd encountered something real. The methods he used, Barbara Lamb has used all the time since, and she now has over 2,000 case studies of abduction phenomena. And when I told her my story, she said, Paul, your story absolutely fits with a very widespread pattern where people will remember the first few seconds of an encounter and then say, I just don't know what happened next. Now, I share my stories, which sound very vague. They sound like stories of nothing, except they're things I've never been able to understand. And they've always sat with me because I want to encourage others to do the same. And I reckon there wouldn't be a friendship circle anywhere or a family circle anywhere that if you sat people down and said, have you ever experienced something you couldn't explain? I reckon every circle would have a story. Maybe every individual would have a story. And as we pool our stories, if we can listen without the ridicule factor, please, and listen with respect, a coherent picture begins to form. And a picture that has to do with we are not alone on this planet. We've got company. We're not alone in this corner of the cosmos. And there are interactions going on that many of us are experiencing. Mm. Who is Satan in the Bible? Is he mentioned? And would you consider Satan, if he is mentioned, just perhaps another alien that's against God? You know what I mean? Like another faction of aliens? Can you comment on that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Certainly the Sky Council that the Bible talks about appears to have a spectrum of entities on it. And uh, one of them in the book of Job gets named as Satan, the deceiver, the accuser. And it's a book. The book of Job is really interesting because many biblical scholars believe it's the oldest book in the Hebrew canon. And many believe it's an Arabic book that's migrated its way into the text. Mm -hmm. And the Satan character in that story would appear to be um, an energy-based being that is like a, what do we call it, like a parasite that feeds off negative human emotion. Now, the Gnostics called these archons, energy-based beings that love to rile biological life to the point where it's anxious, angry, depressed, resentful, and then they feed off that emotion. And the Satan character appears to be something like that in that story, And at the beginning of the Gospels, Jesus has this encounter with a being like that. But then the name, there's a confusion that happens because the name gets used. It overlaps with Lucifer, the accuser, the deceiving spirit. And when we read Genesis 3 and we've got the serpent, there's an equivalent drawn there. So unfortunately, it's a bit of a confused picture. I think essentially we are looking at different kinds of entity. In Genesis 3, the serpent is a physical being. It's one of the colonizers. It correlates with the Sumerian character Enki, not a bad guy, just one who was in conflict with the chief, Enlil. And then you get to the Job story and, no, the Satan character is not nice. And you get to the Gospels, no, the Satan character is not nice. How the names are used, a little bit confusing. The same as how the God word gets used in the Bible, a little bit confusing because it's been laid over other stories. But I think the big picture is we are surrounded by a spectrum of 
company, some physical like ourselves, some interdimensional, some energy-based, and some are nice and some are nasty, just as we have a spectrum of people on planet Earth who've got a spectrum of planet in the uh, uh, of company in the cosmos. Uh, and the names we use may vary from culture to culture, but essentially that's the big picture. I've had two guests refer to Jesus as, I think it's Sananda Kumara, and I think that's kind of a Hindu term, and since your book, Scars of Eden, talks about different cultures around the world, have you come across that in your research? I haven't, but where I'm going in my research for the sequel to The Scars of Eden is looking at some of these connections because there are evidences in the New Testament that the theologians who produced the Gospels and the New Testament writings were highly educated people who knew a lot about world mythology, who knew a lot about the traditions that come from the East. And there are some really interesting parallels in the text in terms of the language so, yes, very possible connections between ancient Sanskrit documents and what we have in the New Testament. And as I researched the Scars of Eden, I found that some of the stories and concepts are far more global than ever I'd imagined. So when Christians tell the story of Jesus and you get to the story of the virgin birth, we tell that story as if it's a story of Jesus' uniqueness, but look again and you realize it's kind of very similar to the birth of John the Baptist, which is very similar to the birth of Isaac. Isaac is a pregnancy that results from a close encounter with three sky people. So to be clear, his parents, Abraham and Sarah, have a close encounter with ETs and then artificially, or what the ancients would say was supernaturally, this postmenopausal mom is pregnant. Same story with John the Baptist, same with Jesus, same with Lao Tzu, same with the Yellow Emperor, same with Vipassi, the 22nd incarnation of Buddha before Siddhartha Gautama Buddha. And we realize that this story of pregnancies that have been altered or of what we would call, uh, what would we say, We've got language of artificial insemination and in vitro fertilization. We've got language like that these days. Our ancients said supernatural. Our ancients said virgin birth. Our ancients said star children. But it's a much bigger story. And so by the time we're listening to Mary meeting this anomalous being and then anomalously getting pregnant with a person who's unusually conscious and intelligent and powerful, we realize it's part of a much wider story. And so we should not be surprised to hear similar stories with other names giving us the same ideas. All right. Well, you titled your book Scars of Eden. What are the scars that are left behind? I believe that there are clues in our psychology as a species, in our geopolitics today, in our religious history that point to the time when we were colonized by extraterrestrials. Just a couple of examples. I think if you think about our paradigms of leadership, when people talk about strong leadership, they tend to mean leadership with no empathy, leadership with no common feeling with the general public. If a leader comes along and says, you're going to have to work harder, 
We're going to make these changes. It's going to be very painful, but we're going to do it. We're going to force it through, and they force it through. People say, oh, strong leadership. Why? Why don't we say that when a leader comes along and says, I want to look at the impacts of all these things before we make any decisions. I want to hear from every party that's going to be impacted. I want to keep this conversation going until we have a way forward that is going to help the great majority. Why do we regard that as weak leadership instead of strong leadership? I believe it's because our patterns of leadership, our psychology of what it looks like was formed at a time when our leaders had no fellow feeling with us because they weren't human, just as our ancestors say in their stories from all around the world. Right now, we are experiencing the most amazing confluence of wars. We've got water wars. Access to clean water is going to be a huge issue in this century. Food wars, how our food is produced, the access that we're allowed to food. uh, food. Are we allowed to generate our harvest next year from our harvest this year, or are we going to be dependent on industry? Farming wars. We've got a massive global conflict between two models of farming. You've got the traditional um, rotational combination organic farming that served us so well for generations, and then you've got the industrial-scale petrochemical genetically modified model, and they are absolutely at loggerheads with the second one trying to obliterate the first. The Scars of Eden suggests these two models of farming that are at war have their roots in two different ET interventions in our development as a species. The one that's in balance with the planet, rotational combination, goes back tens of thousands of years and are Australian Aboriginal ancestors and our Native American ancestors were taught those things. So they tell us by ET visitors from the Pleiades, they often name where those people came from who taught those things. And then we've got another story from about 10,000 years ago on the Fertile Crescent from Karakadag in the Babylonian story of the Apkalu that says others turned up and they taught us all the rudiments of civilization, money systems, banking systems, industrialization, and how to genetically modify naturally occurring plants to turn them into crops. 10,000 years ago, 60,000 years ago plus, and now these are at loggerheads. So the Scars of Eden says there are culture wars like that, culture wars over population levels, education levels, as we talked about before, leadership, models of leadership, access to information. The Scars of Eden says these conflicts all have their roots. These conflicts were all framed in our distant past when we were colonized by ET visitors and our ancestors told stories to inform us about these things, to warn us about these things, and to help us navigate these conflicts so that we can live more intelligently and more consciously on planet Earth. All right. For about 30 years, you were heavily involved in the Anglican Church. How have the people from those religious circles responded to your research? Well, I've been blown away, amazed, really pleased and surprised by how positive most of the response has been to Escaping from Eden and the Scars of Eden. I'm really thrilled when I hear from people in ministry and training for ministry, 
in senior ministry, people who are part of faith communities who contact me and say, thank you so much because this makes sense of things I've seen in the texts or this makes sense of the experiences I've had that I've never been allowed to speak about. The idea of being in a populated universe or having close encounters is a big taboo still in faith communities. And so often people are relieved they can talk about these things, they can process these things because in their churches or their faith communities, they're not allowed to mention them. I have, for instance, um, I won't give the person's name, but there's a, a pastor in the UK who has been in communication with me who's been involved in paranormal ministry in their denomination. And again, that usually in church settings has to do with entity removal from places or people. And they said to the team leader, which in two regions has been, I think, the bishop, they said, in my last two parishes, I've had to respond to a number of parishioners who've had close encounters or who've reported close encounters. We need to develop a pastoral response. We need to develop a theological response. So we know how to deal with cases like this. And in both instances, the bishop has said, you're absolutely right. We really do. Please never mention it again. Hmm. And that's the level of taboo that is still around the topic. I do have from time to time people contacting me through the Fifth Kind TV or the Paul Wallace channel. They'll send in a comment and it'll be, you're a blasphemer. You're luring people to hell. You're a deceiver. You're the antichrist, this, that, and the other. But, you know, even there, I would say 80 to 90% of the time, if I respond and say, thank you so much for your comment, the reason I'm saying this or the, the way I've come to this conclusion is this and talk them through it, 80 to 90% of the time, after a couple of exchanges, we're the best of friends and they're wishing me every success with my research. It's only a tiny proportion who just stay angry because I've, broken the box open <laughs> or I've given them a red pill they can't untake. Um, but, you know, I'm happy to do that. I'm happy to take that flack because I want this to be a conversation, even if people have my book and they want to make fun of me or have a go at me. As, as long as I'm provoking conversations uh, about whether we're alone in the universe, the truth of our origins as a species, I'm happy because that's my intention, that the scars of Eden should put these questions back on the table for mainstream conversation. And it seems somehow every generation needs this taboo breaking so that we can have these conversations. Mm. All right. Well, I'm going to switch gears with you here. I think you mentioned that you're working possibly on a third book. So what I want to know is, do you have any projects that you're working on that you want us to know about? I am uh, working on a sequel to The Scars of Eden. And I should say, I am so grateful to the great many who engaged with me after escaping from Eden because it was that engagement and those conversations that led to The Scars of Eden. And in particular, hearing from people from other countries, cultures all around the world who came and shared their ancestral stories with me. And in particular, people from South Africa, Kenya, Nigeria, and the Philippines. And so that really filled out the picture for the Scars of Eden. And where I'm going in the sequel 
is to listen to some of the shamanic wisdom from cultures like that and asking what other knowledge was suppressed along with our ancestors' knowledge of ET contact because the scars of Eden takes us through history and shows how that ancestral knowledge was deliberately sidelined, suppressed, hidden, burned, buried, punished, so that it wouldn't be part of the mainstream story while remaining in folklore all around the world. What else was in that not for the mainstream batch of information that got hidden? And that's what I'm plumbing in the book I'm working on now. I don't know if you covered it in The Scars of Eden, but I'm curious if you will cover it in your next book, that in South America they find these elongated skulls. Yes, I touch on that in Escaping from Eden. I didn't go there in The Scars of Eden. We just took another journey in The Scars of Eden. I'll be very interested to revisit that, again, with a view to, well, what's the folklore? What do our ancestors from that part of the world have to tell us that correlates with the finds we are making today? And by the time that book comes out, there'll be a little bit more to share in terms of the DNA research uh, that's going on right now. But it's certainly emerging rapidly that our story as a species is far more interesting and diverse than you and I learned at school, Jeff. There were more kinds of human being on the planet in the more recent past than ever we thought. I would consider someone in your position an expert on the Bible. So what is your opinion about, I think it's Paul on his way back or on his way to Lystra. He has some kind of event. And a couple people would agree that that was possibly a near-death experience. Do you know what I'm referring to? And if so, what is your opinion on that? There are a few things in the Gospels and New Testament that get a really intriguing mention and that somehow in 2,000 years we haven't followed up and studied or thought about particularly. That moment is one where Paul describes what could very well be astral travel. It could be another kind of travel where he's literally been taken into space. The language he uses, it could be either of those things for sure. And he says that he saw things that he is not permitted to talk about. What on earth could that be? What do you mean not permitted? Who's not permitting you? In fact, it's a slightly more general statement that suggests that people who experience these things are not allowed to talk about them. The conversations he had, the entities he saw, the places he was taken, not allowed to tell you about that. Well, that's rather intriguing. Jesus, similarly, at the end of his three years of public teaching ministry, says to his closest followers, he said, you know, there's some other stuff I would really like to tell you about, but uh, you are not ready for it. You wouldn't be able to cope with it. So that will have to be for your descendants. <laughs> that will be for another time. The Holy Spirit will have to guide you in all that. And you think, what? After three years of the most mind 
life-bending, worldview-shattering teaching and ministry. They've seen deliverances. They've seen healings. They've seen miracles. They've had their whole intellectual world thrown open. What on earth could Jesus now have to say that they're not ready to process and it'll be for their descendants? Well, this is intriguing. And there are other things in the text as well to do with contact with other kinds of entity, what happens to us when we die, channeling experiences, other kinds of beings that communicate with us, contact with ancestors. It's all there in the texts, but didn't get developed into what became Orthodox Christianity. You'll find developments of it in, in Gnostic texts, but they were the ones that got buried so that they wouldn't be destroyed altogether. And so those moments, well, they are going to be in the sequel to the Scars of Eden because they represent a much bigger and, I might say, far more interesting story that talks about our place in the cosmos and how we can develop our consciousness and our potential. Do you think in your next book you will speak about who Jesus really was, if you haven't already? And can you give us a very brief answer of, you know, was Jesus a hybrid? Was Jesus, what was Jesus in your opinion? Jeff, I'm so glad you put it that way. It's the way the question is framed most frequently when people ask me, was Jesus a hybrid? I've actually got a, a video on the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube. I've titled it, Was Jesus an Alien? Which uh, seems to have attracted a lot of attention. But essentially, it's asking that hybrid question. Was he a hybrid? What made him different? And in The Scars of Eden, I do talk about that. I talk about these stories surrounding his pregnancy, how that's part of a, a wide tradition of stories of indigo children or star children, that Jesus is just one example of that, and that there are many women around the world today who could share something similar from their own family stories. They might have four children, but something unusual happened with the third pregnancy, and there's something different about that child. So that's a different framing for our understanding of Jesus. Plato once again comes into the story because the way he talks about what we really are that frames Jesus' story in a way the early church fathers accepted that later got edited out. So I do go there in The Scars of Eden. Who is Jesus? Why is he different? And in the sequel, I'll go even further and talk about how it relates to narratives from all around the world. Hmm. Have you ever? But I would say this, we're all hybrids. We're all hybrids. At the end of the day, our ancestors say Lots. we are all hybrids. And I would, as a short answer, say... When you're looking at stories of indigo children or star children, some of us are just a little bit more hybrid than others. And that would be my suggestion about Jesus. I wish I wasn't running out of time because I really would love to talk to you about <laughs> star seeds because that's been common on my channel as well. Have you ever considered writing a companion to the Bible, breaking down you know, verse for verse or just major stories, your interpretation of it? Yes, I have. I'm actually working on a documentary for the Fifth Kind TV right now that's going to do that in documentary form, going through the early stories of Genesis, um, just verse by verse, 
and reframing it as we go along. I do a bit of that in Escaping from Eden. Mm-hmm. I'll do it in this documentary for the Fifth Kind TV. And uh, if my juices really get flowing through that exercise, then yes, maybe a whole book will result from that. I certainly think there's a need for it because people really seem to need a lot of help reframing. Most of the people who come to my website for coaching do it because they're struggling to reframe. They've had a close encounter or they've read my book and they're thinking, I just don't know how to square this with the world I live in or the faith I hold. I have taken a red pill. I've now disoriented. How do I navigate my way forward? People need help with that reframing. And I think, yes, a book like the one you describe probably is needed. Yeah, I think it would be amazing. All right. Speaking about your books, your two books are Escape from Eden and The Scars of Eden, right? And they can be found on Amazon and probably your website as as where else? Absolutely. You can go to Amazon, Kindle, Barnes Noble, Hive, Book Depository, wherever books are sold, you will find Escaping from Eden and The Scars of Eden. It's been released. It's available right now. If you go to my website, which is paulanthonywallace.com, Anthony with an H and then Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S, paulanthonywallace.com, you can keep up with what's happening around Escaping from Eden and the Scars of Eden. Go to my YouTube channel, the Paul Wallace channel, or to the Fifth Kind TV, and I do a lot of conversation with people in the comments there. We don't just put videos up and leave them. I get into conversations with people through the comments there. And if you get hold of my books and you have a problem with them or a question or you've got something you'd like to add to nudge my research in the right direction, get in touch with me that way. And I'd love to hear from you and get into conversation with you. Do you have an audio version of your book out? Oh, people keep asking me this. When's the audio coming? I I really do what to do one. And it's up on my whiteboard for me to do that towards the end of the year. I'm going to do the audio of escaping from Eden first, and then I'll do the audio of the scars of Eden. Cause I know many people are not readers. They're happy to be read too. And of course, once it's audio, you can listen in the car, listen while you're doing other things. So it's mm-hmm. on the agenda. So I will do it. Keep nudging me everyone. Mm-hmm. And I will get that done. I was going to say, you have a terrific voice and a great accent, so it would oh, it would be perfect you. for you to be doing the actual voiceover. Well, that that is the plan. Mm. Thank you. All right. All right. Well, Bert, before we wrap it up here, do you have one last message that you'd like to share with the audience? I think probably we've all had experiences that clue us that we have so much potential as homo sapiens. I believe one of the reasons we excite such interest from cosmic neighbors is that we are an amazing species. We are a unique blend of animal strength, mammal emotion, higher consciousness. All of us have these glimpses of precognition, telepathic connection, self-healing that clue us that we can be far more. And this is what our ancestors tell us. So I, I, I never like getting bogged down in the language of us being a slave species. We're so much more than that. The fact that um, such lengths have to be gone to to manage us, show us what an intelligent, vital, resilient species we are. And where I come to at the end of The Scars of Eden 
is I want to become more human and I want to access more of my switched off bits of brain and just find out more and more what this human experience can be while I'm having it. Hmm. That's a great message. All right, Paul, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. And I wish you massive success in whatever you're doing. Jeff, thanks so much for having me on today. I love your channel. And in our household, we watch it religiously. We love what you're doing. Oh, well, thank you so much. All right. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.